Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, I hope you do enjoy the snow outside. Any snow lovers this weekend? All right, not too many in the house here, at least. Uh, hope all of you on live stream enjoy it better than this crew does. <laughs> why, why do you live in Michigan? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I remember as a kid uh, in Ohio, we don't get the, the same amount of snow that what we get here in Michigan. And so, like, we get six inches, ten inches. You know, that's something to just be excited about because we get a snow day at the drop of a hat. But um, here, um, we... we not this year, but we get more snow, and just snow is great. Enjoy it while it's here. Uh, lean into it as much as you can, and stay safe in it. Um, we are excited to have you here this morning as we begin a new series, and the series is going to be The Kingdom, and over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the Gospels. It's going to be a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit everywhere, but we're focusing upon this idea of the kingdom, the kingdom. Um, let me ask you this. If you were to describe Jesus' ministry in just like a, a word or a couple words, what's a way that you would describe it? What's a word or phrase that you would describe the, the, the purpose and the intention of Jesus' mission here on earth? Say what? Okay. F- fabulous. Is that what you said? Yeah. Well, I, I like that. I didn't think about that one. That's good. Salvation. That's a good one. Okay. Anybody else? Say it again. Servitude. Okay. Being a servant. Good. Online, you can say yours out loud for us. Um, Yes. I like that too. Yes. Um, Sorry. (laughs) If you were to describe Jesus' mission in a couple words, um, words like these might be what you would say. You might say gospel. You might say love. You you might say um, grace, maybe forgiveness. I like all the ones that have been given, too. There's a lot of words we could use to describe Jesus' ministry and the purpose and the intention of his teaching. Um, But I want to take you to three places briefly in the Gospels that begin to describe Jesus' mission here on earth. Um, The first one is in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to go in fairly quick succession with these, so I have them on the screen here for you. Matthew 4. Jesus has just been tempted, and um, he has done battle with the adversary. He's responded to these temptations with the Word of God coming from Deuteronomy. And then it says this. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, and he began to preach this message. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Interesting. Kingdom of heaven. Um, Mark chapter 4, we have something very similar here. Um, It says, after John was arrested. Now, John is known to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And we're going to actually look at him with a little more detail next week in in one of the gospel passages that talks about the kingdom. But it says this in Mark chapter 1. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Some translations say good news of God. Some, news, some say the good news of the kingdom of God, depending on which manuscripts you're pulling from. But the idea of kingdom is here because we get it in verse 15. The, the time is fulfilled, <clears throat> Jesus says, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe 
in the good news. All right, so some of these very first words out of Jesus' mouth recorded by the Gospel of Mark are, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. In Luke, we have another example. It says this in Luke chapter 4. When it was day, here, let me actually pull this one up in my text as well. You can go to Luke chapter 4 really quickly, if you would, for us. In Luke chapter 4, because I want to show you um, something additionally here. Um, In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the Galilee. He's actually in his hometown, and he begins to proclaim the message of why he's here. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he's actually quoting the prophet Isaiah. Other gospels record this as well. He he quotes Isaiah, and he says, "The the The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and he sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down and he says, today as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled in its hearing. And you come just a couple of verses later into Luke chapter four and verse 42. So he's been preaching in his hometown. He's been driving out uh, unclean spirits in the region that he has grown up in, not just Nazareth, but Capernaum, we find out in verse 31, and then he, he is also in Capernaum in a couple of verses later, but then he says this, he says, when it was day, after all these healings and all these um, uh, explanations about his ministry have taken place, it says, he went out and he made his way to a deserted place, but the crowds were searching for him. They'd seen this guy do miracles and marvelous things, but the crowds were searching for him, and they came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. He says this to them, I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also. And he adds this, because I was sent for this purpose. I want to suggest to you that central to Jesus' message in all of his ministry was this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom was what Jesus came to proclaim. In fact, as it says there in verse 43, this was the reason Jesus was sent, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So, all these things that you have mentioned, you know, forgiveness, servitude, um, all, all these things are wrapped up in this message that Jesus has about the kingdom. So one of the things we want to do over the course of the next several weeks is talk about what is the kingdom. And to be honest with you, I struggled with this for a little while because you start reading the Gospels and everything Jesus does is about the kingdom. And so where do you stop, right? So as you read through the Gospels, and if you don't have a reading plan or something like that for right now in your spiritual devotions every day, jump into the Gospel of Matthew and just start reading. And notice how many times it says kingdom kingdom, kingdom, because there's this contrast that Jesus is going to bring. He's going to say, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this earth. He'll say, the kingdom of God is here among you. He will go and he will, he will proclaim and preach the good news of the kingdom to all people. The center of Jesus' message, I suggest to you, is the good news of the kingdom. If you were to put it all together as one idea that has, that has many parts to it. 
We see these references throughout the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, what is a kingdom, okay? We live in a time in which there are not many kings and queens left uh, in the, the world. Um, my family and I, we just watched the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe the other day. Which, by the way, if you, uh, if you have not read the Chronicles of Narnia as a book series by C.S. Lewis, well worth your time. In fact, even if you are young or you are old or you are super young, um, it's a great read aloud for a family uh, or a great one to just kind of read through yourself. Um, of course, be very mindful of younger, younger children at certain parts. But what is a kingdom? Because like in the Chronicles of Narnia, you have this king whose name is Aslan, and then you have these four other kings and queens who play an a important part and an important role in that movie, and I'm not going to spoil it for you. So you'll get to go read the books and then watch the movies because it's better that way. Um, what is a kingdom? A kingdom is this. It is the act of ruling, kingship, royal power, or royal rule. Say that one five times fast. Royal rule. Uh, the act of ruling, kingship, royal power, royal rule. All right? That's one way you can define a kingdom in the Bible. The other way you can define a kingdom is the territory ruled by a king. And so a king would refer to his kingdom. And he's not just talking about people. He's talking about a certain geographical place. When it's used in the Gospels, it is talking in reference to the first one here, the act of ruling. And I actually like that, that phrase really well because it's something that is present and is continuous and is ongoing. And that's captured by that word ruling. When Jesus comes to proclaim the kingdom, he's pronouncing and he's proclaiming that there is a rule of God that he is inviting people into. In their lives. So it's this act of ruling. It's this act of kingship, of royal power, royal rule. What does it mean to live under someone's rule? Well, if you were to live within a kingdom, um, the, the, the hearers of the Gospels lived within more of an empire, maybe not so much a kingdom, but they lived within an empire that was um, all all-powerful, all-encompassing upon their lives. Um, you have these Roman emperors that would come in and they would say jump and you would say how high, or you would try to kind of work your way around it. But Jesus comes and he comes to proclaim this, this kingdom in the middle of a context where there is another authority governing. So what does it mean to submit to the rule of someone else. Well, to, to live under someone else's rule means that you have a shift of priority, that there is a loyalty that is uh, focused upon what, um, what they desire and how you are to live in light of what they desire. In the ancient period, it was often forced upon people it was often forced upon people. You, you, would be, you would be told, you are in this kingdom, now you will do what I say. But to join God's kingdom involves not compulsion or force. Rather, for Jesus, it's an invitation. Come, follow me. Let me be your king. Follow me. Make, make my desires and my will that of yourself. As he says in the disciples' prayer, when he's teaching his disciples to pray, he says, Our Father in heaven, may your name be sanctified. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. You could translate that. May your kingdom be established. 
This is the prayer of a disciple. May God, your kingdom be established in my life, not the kingdoms of other territories and peoples. God, may your kingdom be that which I serve with my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. It's interesting. In um, Deuteronomy chapter 17, you have a description of what the ancient um, kings of Israel were to be. All right, This is the ideal. Because God says in Deuteronomy 17, he says, I know you're going to go, I'm paraphrasing here, I, I know that you're going to go into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, but when you go in there, take possession and live in it. And, and he says, I know that you're going to want to have kings because you're going to want to be like the nations surrounding you. And he says, so if you have a king, here's how your king should be. And he describes the ideal king. He says, you are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. All right, Deuteronomy 17, 15. So God's choice of king is very important for his people. And he says, appoint a king from your brothers. Don't put a foreigner over you. Let it be someone who has the same heart, the same mind, the same priority that you do to honor me and to worship me. But then he gives some very interesting stipulations. He says, he must not acquire many horses for himself. Okay, you're like, okay, horses. Apparently God doesn't like horses or something like that. Sorry, you equestrians. Um, no, the, 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 the ongoing joke in our house is how do you make a small fortune? You, okay, how do you make a small fortune? You, you um, buy a couple of horses and then you begin with a large fortune. <laughs> so you have to have a lot of money, then you spend a lot of money on horses. Never mind. Anyways, uh, that was a bad joke. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's a groaner. Whew. Okay, but he says, he says, don't have many horses, which means this don't put your trust in something other than God. All right, horses are the ancient period's version of tanks and weaponry. He says, don't have many horses because then you might think you're strong in and of yourself. Trust me, God says. And then he says, um, don't go back to Egypt. Don't, don't go back to the way of slavery. Let your king be one who leads you into freedom. He says in verse 17, he says, the king should not acquire many wives for himself. Why? Well, we can see this in the life of Solomon who had 700 wives. That's crazy. Um, he had 700 wives. And as we look at Solomon's life, each wife took a different priority away from him other than God. You know, he'd be married to one of the daughters of Pharaoh in Egypt, and so he has Egypt's interest to care about, and he has this person's interest to care about. God wants a king to be solely focused on, what do I want from you? How does a king serve God first? And many wives can make his heart go astray. Uh, he also must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. In other words, he shouldn't find his trust in what he has monetarily. When he, and this is interesting. In Deuteronomy 17, it says, When he is seated on the royal throne, he's to write a copy of this instruction. All right, These words that have been given, and Deuteronomy is the, the second giving of the law. That's what it actually means. It means second law. Um, and part of that is, how, Israel, do you live righteously in the land I'm going to give you? How, how do you treat people? How do you treat animals? It, it, it's a code that gives very practical teaching and instruction to how they are supposed to live in covenant with God in the land that the Lord has given them. But in, in verse 18, the king is to write for himself a copy of the instruction, and he is to read from it all the days of his life. Just imagine that. So you're the king. 
You're the most powerful person in all the land, and God has just said in his word, by the way, I want you to make a copy of it. I want you to write down this entire teaching that I'm giving you. Why? All right? He can't go cheat and have a scribe do it for him. He is to do it himself. Why? Because there is something about putting the word of God upon your mind and upon your heart that you cannot replace by having someone else do it for you. He wants that king to rule and to reign righteously, and he knows for that to happen, he's got to have the word of God dwell inside of him. And if that's true for the king, it's true for the subjects as well. He's to write a copy of the instruction in the presence of the Levitical priest. It's to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and to observe all the words of this instruction and to do these statutes. The last part of an ancient king's job description is, then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. So, so having a right fear of God, right understanding of God's word, doesn't place you in power and authority in a negative sense over people. Rather, it gives you that idea of servitude that was mentioned over here. It gives you this, this, um, this wisdom and understanding to say, I exist for more than myself, which when you have money, power, and strength, typically, not always, but typically, we become very self-focused. He says, he will not turn from this command to the right, to the left, and he and his sons will continue ruling for many years over Israel. And that's part of the promise that God gave to his people, Israel. So that's kind of the Deuteronomy perspective of what is a king. That's a righteous ruling king, one who has God's priorities, one who cares about the people whom he governs, and that is exemplified in Jesus' ministry here on this earth. I want to give you five observations about God's kingdom and these are helpful to know as we go into the remaining uh, teachings over the next uh, several weeks here. The first one is this. Um, God's kingdom is a present reality. All right? God's kingdom is a present reality. In Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus is asked, when will the kingdom come? And he says, he responds with this. He says, it's not coming with something observable. You see, he says, the kingdom of God is among you. He says, it's a present reality. The kingdom is here. Why? Because Jesus, the king, came. All right? Jesus coming inaugurates the kingdom on earth. It's interesting because right after that happens, um, Jesus then talks about the days of the coming of the Son of Man. One of the, one of the things you see in the Gospels is you'll see the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, or, and you'll see the phrase the, the Son of Man. Typically when it refers to the coming of the Son of Man, which happens in the next phrase of John 17, it's referring to Jesus' second coming. Uh, and it goes back to this phrase in the book of Daniel when it talks about eschatologically or future end times, the coming of the Son of Man. Just a little tidbit there for you. So number one is God's kingdom is a present reality. Um, along with that, God's kingdom has a future hope. And that refers to the coming of the Son of Man. The, the time in which the reigning of Messiah will return. Messiah will rule and reign in person on earth. That is a future hope that we have. So kingdom is a present reality, but it also has a future hope. Number three, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonymous terms. Typically, you will see in the Gospels, kingdom of heaven in Matthew, and you'll see kingdom of God in Mark 
and in Luke. In fact, you saw that this morning with the verses I had up here for you. In the Matthew um, section, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. But in Mark and in Luke, it says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Or in Mark, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. It's the same thing. Okay, don't let that confuse you. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of those is that Matthew is predominantly written to the Jewish people. All right, it's a very Jewish gospel in a lot of the ways and phrases it uses. Mark and Luke are written more to um, a multi-ethnic audience. You know, they're not written just to Jews, but they're also written to Greeks. You know, when Luke begins his gospel, he, he's giving an account to Theophilus about the things that. Jesus had done. And so there's a recognition here that this book is going to go beyond the Jewish people. Why does that matter? Um, be, here's why it matters. is because kingdom of heaven is a rabbinical term. Um, heaven is often used also as a, as a replacement for saying the name of God. In the ancient period, at the time of Jesus, um, they, they attempted to not speak the name of God because they didn't want to speak it carelessly. And so they would have synonyms for the name of God, and heaven was one of those. Um, one of the ways that we see this in modern day is you might know the phrase, heaven help me. All right? When we say that, we're saying, God help me. We're not saying heaven is like the sky above or something like that, as if the sky could do anything. We're saying, God help me, heaven help me. We also see it, um, for example, in the parable of the um, prodigal son. So the son goes away, he squanders his father's wealth, he comes back and he says to his father with great repentance, remorse in his heart, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. All right, so he's talking to his father, but he's saying, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. So, don't let kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God kind of make you think that there's multiple kingdoms here. I think the best understanding of it, given all the evidence, um, is that they are synonymous. Uh, just kingdom of heaven is a bit more of a Jewish perspective, and kingdom of God is a little bit less. Um, so that's number three. So we have kingdom of, God's kingdom is a present reality. Number two, the, um, the God's kingdom has a future hope. Number three, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing um, as you read it. Uh, number four, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God presently refers to the time since the Messiah Jesus came and includes the time until he returns to judge, also known as the coming of the Son of Man. Kind of talked about that a little bit. Um, the last one is this. To receive the kingdom is to allow God to rule in your heart and to do what he says. Right? To receive the kingdom is to let God rule in your heart and to do what he says. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning just talking about this for a few moments. Um, in Luke chapter 10, would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 10 and go to the end of Luke chapter 10. You're almost at Luke chapter 11. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is going, uh, going through various parables and teachings and one of the things that he does is he comes to a house of some people whom he knew really well. Their names are Martha and Mary. Now, they're sisters to a man named Lazarus, who we find out in the Gospel of John, is the one whom Jesus raises from the dead. So he's at their house, and this is Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Uh, read with me, please. Um, while they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet 
and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. That's my interpretation of the attitude behind that. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice. And it will not be taken away from her. The fifth point of the kingdom is to receive the kingdom is to let God rule in your heart and to do what he says. And in Luke chapter 10, we have Jesus in the village of Bethany. This is a photo taken of Bethany, which is about two miles uh, to the east of Jerusalem. So it's pretty close to Jerusalem. This photo was taken in the 1890s. And so you can kind of still see before a lot of the modernization has taken place. This is a community where you knew everybody. You knew who lived in that house. You knew who lived in that house. And you have a person named Martha who invites Jesus into her home. And she has a sister named Miriam or Mary. And it says here in the text in verse 39 that um, Mary sat at the Lord's feet. It actually says who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. The picture we get here is that both of these people are disciples of Jesus. Martha's inviting Jesus in. She wants to be near Jesus. She wants to have this relationship with the Lord. She knows that it's from him all life comes. As John's gospel says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. But Martha is very, very concerned about a couple of things. And Mary is concerned about one thing. Mary is described here as sitting at the Lord's feet. This is a very Jewish way of understanding that she is a disciple. She is sitting at the feet of her master, wanting to hear his teaching. Um, And that's interesting because I'm not exactly positive where this fits in with the timeline of Jesus' three-year ministry. Um, I think it's more towards the end of his ministry, but the Gospels are not always chronological, so we have to be careful with that. Um, but, but this is, just consider this, you, your Lord is only on earth a few years. You may not see him every day. And Martha's concerned, while Jesus is in her presence, Martha's concerned with um, her many tasks. And the word tasks here is actually comes from the word from which we get deacon. Uh, it's diakonia. And so th- these are not necessarily bad tasks. These are servant tasks. These are ways in which Martha wants to serve Jesus. But Mary is tuned into something very, very important. Jesus is teaching, and Mary is by his feet, hanging on every single word. She's sitting at the Lord's feet. She's listening to him teach. The idea of discipleship in the first century is not just, I want to know what you know. To be a disciple in the first century is, I want to be who you are. So when Jesus calls his disciples, and it's interesting, it's a study for another time, but Jesus actually calls his disciples. He comes to Peter and he says, follow me. He comes to Andrew and he says, follow me. He comes to Matthew and Levi and Simon. He says, follow me. In the ancient period of this time, 
Typically, the student who wants to be a disciple goes to their rabbi and they say, Rabbi, can I follow you? Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, follow me. Just a side thing. We'll have to study that sometime in more depth. But, but Jesus is teaching and Martha is there because she wants to follow. She, she wants to hear. And the idea of hear to the Jewish person is not just listen, but it's to obey. She wants to have a life that cares about the things that her master cares about. But notice verse 40. I talked to you about tasks, but it says this, Martha was distracted by her many tasks. All right? In the ancient period, you have tasks like this that Martha's working on, okay? You don't go to Costco and buy a big 10-pound bag of flour you get the grain that you have harvested from the prior year's harvest, you put it on something like this, and you start grinding because you're going to make food for your guest, and you're grinding, and you're grinding. She's gathered around a stove, possibly. She's cooking. She's cooking. She's cooking. She's gathered in a kitchen. This is kind of a model of an ancient kitchen from this period. There's a ton of work to do. She's feeding people. There's no fast food to go pick up. There are no cans to open. You can't just put, pop something in the microwave and it'll be done in 35 seconds. This is laborious work. So there's a lot to do. But it says in verse 40, Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And the word distracted here means to have one's attention redirected. It can also mean that Martha was overburdened is the other way you could translate that. Martha, while Jesus is here, is very overwhelmed by a lot of secondary things. And when it comes to receiving the kingdom and letting God rule and to reign in our hearts and to do what he says, I think Martha helps us see something that's very, very challenging for many of us today. You pull out your cell phone and you have 1,500 notifications from everyone and their brother who wants to sell you something, who wants to let you know something, or just a you know, a a notification from a social media thing. You get on your computer and you're quickly distracted by some work that you were doing beforehand. You walk into the house and you're overwhelmed because you have 15 projects that you've been working on for five years and you've never finished them. I don't know about you, but, you know, house projects are not the top thing on my list. So you walk in and you go, oh, here's another one. And Jesus responds to this, this dear woman who's distracted who has her attention redirected from Jesus to all the things around her that want to make her run and run and run. And Martha comes to him, and I love it. She's like, Lord, don't you care (laughs) that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to give me a hand. Even in ministry and in holy work, one of the things that we can often do is we can say, Jesus, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Jesus, why don't you tell them to help me? (laughs) Don't know if you've ever experienced that. But Jesus responds to her with great grace. He says, Martha, Martha. One scholar describes this as a gentle and pointed response. He doesn't rebuke her harshly. He says, Martha, let me teach you something. You are worried. You are upset about many things. And actually, in the next chapter in Luke 11, he's going to talk about worry and and how worry can be something that just overwhelms us. He says, 
do you look at the, the grass of the field and the lilies that are out there? They, they don't sow or labor or spin, and yet your father cares for them. He knows exactly what they need, he says in Luke chapter 11. But in Luke chapter 10, he says, Martha, you're worried, you're upset about many things. Many things that drive the attention and the schedule of her life. But he says in verse 42, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. Martha is anxious about all these things of the world and she misses the gift of Jesus right in front of her. I don't think Jesus is saying, don't do things. He's, he's not saying become inactive in life. I think he's saying within your activity, there must be a focus point of who you are and who you become. And to have Jesus sitting right here in front of you, don't miss the opportunity to grow in relationship. Is part of what he's saying to her. I love the way that the Moody Bible Commentary puts it. It says this. It says, In a mild rebuke to Martha for her concern for so many things, so many trivial things, Jesus informed Martha that Mary had chosen what was most important, listening to the Lord. Jesus' point was that the mere formalities of a relationship with Jesus, things like serving the Lord dinner or meeting him in a social setting, must never take the place of a vital and personal relationship with the Lord. Mere social contact with Jesus or other disciples in church, they say, cannot replace serious attention to his teaching. So, how do we begin to bring this down for us today? Martha is not unlike many of us. We become worried. We become distracted very easily sometimes by things. And maybe those things have some degree of importance to them. But oftentimes they don't. We become distracted by things that are very insignificant in the course of our entire life. And they drive our life. Part of what Jesus is telling to Martha is don't replace the most important thing with a lot of secondary things. The psalmist puts it this way. I think it's Psalm 84. He says, one thing I ask and I would seek to gaze upon you in the temple, to behold who you are. I'm paraphrasing. But it's this idea of one thing I ask. Can I ask you a question? What's the one thing you drive for? What's the one thing you drive for in all of your life? If you're to look at your days, what patterns your days? The rhythms, are they driven by an intent to know God more personally? Or are they driven by a schedule and by a sense of duty that's outside of that? Sure, there are things that God calls us to. He calls us to hard work. Work in Genesis is a gift from God and is meant to be engaged with passionately. But it's always meant to be engaged with with the right motivation. Paul says it this way later in the New Testament. He says, we work for the Lord. In everything you do, do unto the glory of God. There's a guy whose uh, name is Brother Lawrence, and he, he wrote a book 
on discipleship. And one of the things that he describes in this book, I wish I could remember the title right now, um, but one of the things he describes in this book is how he, as a, um, we're, we're working with, within a, um, a nun as a convent, what is the other one? Um, say it again? A monastery, thank you. Oh, monk and monastery, I can only get the other side. He's a monk in a monastery. He's serving God, and, he's, and, and one of the things he says in the book is he says, I can bring great worship to God by peeling potatoes. <laughs> I hate peeling potatoes. Maybe he did too. But the focus of his life was so strong that he saw every small thing in his life as a way to engage in relationship with the God who redeemed him. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and you are upset about many things. What are the things that cause you worry today? Go ahead, make a list. (laughs) Start one in your mind, write one down. What are the things that cause you worry today? What are the things that cause you to be distracted from the spiritual relationship God wants to have with you? All right? Technology, phone, that's a big one for a lot of us. Is it housework or chores? It doesn't mean don't do them. It just means maybe they distract you from more important things. Is it sleep? (laughs) The beginning of this year, I was like, oof, I've got to uh, get up earlier and kind of change some of my priorities because, you know, I like sleep. And so if you like sleep, sometimes you don't want to get up early and start your day in the right way. Is it a relationship? What are the many things that cause your life to be driven by things outside of what God wants to experience with you? Maybe it's a certain sin in your life. Maybe it's a choice that you make that takes you down a path where your mind is now not just like inactive, but your mind is set upon the things that do not honor God. What are the things that bring you um, distraction in your life? This last week, um, I, so I went for a run on Thursday, and then, uh, or sorry, yeah, on, on Thursday, and then I was picking up um, a vacuum cleaner on Friday. Or I'm going somewhere with this. I was picking up a vacuum cleaner on Friday, and I tweaked my back in a weird way. And sure, I can go out and go for a run in the semi-snow, but I can't pick up a vacuum cleaner without becoming, you know, in a ton of pain on my left side. So I went and I saw the chiropractor and got looked at and was still in pain for a good, a good chunk of days uh, afterwards. You know, I'm still feeling it a little bit this morning. But it hit me this morning. There's a lot of things that bring focus to our life. When you're in pain somewhere, and some of you, you experience pain on a regular basis, when you're in pain somewhere, you're never forgetting, oh, that hurts. Oh, that hurts. You know, getting up from the couch, oh, that hurts. Sitting down into a chair, oh, I feel that. I think that's part of the picture, not the pain part of the picture, but I think that's part of the picture Jesus wants us to have when it comes to having a single-hearted mind and focus upon him. So every task I've done for the last couple days has been how do I protect this side of my body? How do I make sure that I don't go into that spasm-type pain? I'm very conscious of this. In our spiritual lives, I think God wants us to have 
this great consciousness that he is with us and that we're in relationship with him in all these small things of life. And so not like pain, but you get up for your day and you go out to make a cup of coffee and you're starting your day by saying, all right, Lord, conscious about you. It's like I feel the pain in my side. God, I'm reminded you are here with me. You go to um, open your Bible and you say, God, you're here with me. Teach me your ways that I might know your heart. You, you go to work or you go to school. You go and engage with the things God has called you to engage with. You care for your kids. You take care of your spouse. And you're constantly reminded, Lord, what would it mean to walk and to talk with you right now? God, what would please you? What would bring a smile to your face? You come to the end of your day, and as you go, every small thing reminds you, God, how would you want me to live and to serve here? Maybe you work in business. Maybe you work in education. Maybe you're a nurse. Maybe you take care of your kids throughout the day. Maybe you take care of grandkids throughout the day. What would it look like for your day to not be driven by the anxiousness and the double-mindedness and being um, constantly redirected away from what God wants for, for you and rather to let Christ be the center of all you do and are? That's the picture of discipleship. Now, in reality, almost all of us struggle with that because we get off on one thing, we get off on another. But here's the picture I want you to paint in your mind, or I want to paint for you in your mind, to receive God's kingdom and to be about God's kingdom, which is a present reality for us today, means that our mind is constantly focused on, God, what would bring you glory? God, how could I love you and engage in relationship with you in this that you have given me today. I want to invite you to pray with me, invite our worship team to come on up. And just before we pray, in the quietness of this moment, perhaps the Lord is bringing to your mind things that have caused you anxiety, that have caused you fear, that have caused your mind to go in different ways and to become distracted from the most important thing, and that is knowing and following Jesus, having a personal relationship with him as your Lord and as your Savior. What are those things for you? Be very specific. And hear Jesus' words one more time. Martha, Martha. You're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice. Sit at the Lord's feet to hear his voice, to walk in relationship with him. She's made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. Our Father and our King, you teach us to pray. In the very next phrase here, you teach us to pray, God, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, so many times, my, my desire and my will is not for you and for your kingdom. It's for the kingdom I'm building for myself. Financial security, happiness and joy at home, having 
a perfect car that works. God, there's a lot of things that cause my heart and my mind to stray from you. And yet, God, you are all that we need. God, you are sufficient for us today. God, in our weakness, you are made strong. God, you've given us many things to choose from in this life, but there's one thing that brings life, and that's you. Jesus says, in me is life. And God, we want to experience that life this week. We want to experience that life right now as part of your kingdom at work in us. God, forgive us for our sins. God, forgive us for the ways in which we prioritize our kingdom and we we don't prioritize yours all the time. God, teach us what it means to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you. God, teach us what it means to say the words of confession. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as ourselves. God, I thank you that in the middle of this, you do not look upon us. You don't look upon us with anger or hatred. In fact, God, you love us. You have initiated relationship with us through your Son. Thank you, God, for inviting us to be your disciple. We say again, here we are. Teach us your ways that we might rely upon your faithfulness. Give us an undivided heart to fear you and to trust you again this day. And as the psalmist says, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love to me. You have delivered me. We bless you in the name of Jesus. Together we say, amen. If you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you into a closer walk with Jesus this week. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to respond to Jesus' call to follow him. And simply that means this, much of what I prayed, it means that we recognize there are so many ways in which we have sinned against God. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made, us, has made a way for us to be made right with God. And by believing that Jesus died and rose again for our sins, choosing to not walk in the pattern of our own sins, we, we repent, we say, God, we have sinned. But God, we trust you to bring us and to make us right with you. And that is true for each one who is hearing my voice today. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing just a minute here and just be reminded of this great truth that God's kingdom is a present reality for our lives. Thanks so much for joining us today.